I would say we, the insurance industry, uh, really worked for two, three hundred years, uh, to make it really complex. And I think this is a strategy <laughs> that the, the, the normal people, let's call them, or the policyholder do not really understand, um, these skull and bones environment and the myths of our industry. Um, so if you demystify that to some of the participants in our industry, it's hard for them to understand that it could be that easy. Because as we talk about now about the solution, and you described it to me now, uh, as I described to you earlier, it sounds so, from my perspective, so easy. It's a piece of cake uh, uh, with, with that so, uh, scenario transferring my risk. And if I then tell you that machine learning helps you to price the risk as, as, as good as an underwriter could do, and that a blockchain delivers the uh, transparency, but also the security, like a traditional insurance company with a double A standard and poor's rating has. Yeah, then we are close to the question, is this a way how the traditional insurance market could be disrupted or the value chain could be disrupted? Today's episode is brought to you by Exige International. Exige is an executive search and recruitment training business that Fiona and myself have been working on for the last 19 years. We provide technology and innovation focused executives to the insurance and wider financial services sector with a focus on the UK and Swiss markets. If you have a search or you'd like to discuss improving your recruitment and interviewing process, please visit our website Exige International. Exige is spelled E-X-I-G-E. And tell the team William sent you. I'm also very happy to introduce our new sponsor, Crankhouse Coffee. Crankhouse Coffee is run by Dave Stanton, producing some of the UK's most exciting coffees, available for dispatch all over Europe. With a host of single origin and hard-to-find coffee, expertly roasted with care and attention, Crankhouse Coffee is a true gem of a business. I've been drinking this coffee for years and I am thoroughly happy to have them as a sponsor of the show. So just head over to crankhousecoffee.co.uk that's crankhousecoffee.co.uk and you can use the code William to receive a special discount. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Marcus Schmalbach. CEO and founder of RiskX. RiskX is specialized in hedging corporate risks through parametric solutions with a focus on captives and S&P 500 companies. If this all sounds confusing, that's fine, because I've asked Marcus to join us on the show to bring his expertise in insurance and parametric solutions and explain all of the ways that these work, helping us better understand this very important and growing part of insurance. So, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Marcus. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Marcus Schmabach. Marcus, great to have you here today with us on Search of Purpose. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much for your invitation. Happy to be here. 
Fantastic. Now, Marcus, I've, I love the work that you're doing in insurance with RiskX, and you've got a really interesting background, a mix between academia and practically being in business as well, which is a fantastic mix to see. But you spent your career thinking about insurance. And so I'd like to just get your opinion on that. So why is insurance important? Yeah, from my personal perspective, first of all, insurance is really an interesting field. And um, on the other hand, insurance is definitely uh, important for companies as every single company, no matter what they are doing, um, they are exposed to risks. And so the idea of insurance is more or less saying um, transfer that risk from your company to us. And so I think this is a, a really interesting field because insurance itself is a non-technical uh, 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 um, product itself and I'm always fascinated by that if you if you have a car you can see it you can touch it um, insurance is a trust and truth business and so I think this is really interesting and um, makes it yeah makes it so interesting for me being part of that trust and truth that's a interesting way to describe it um, what what do you mean by trust and truth I would say, on the one hand, you 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 have two partners involved: um, the insurer, or let's call them the risk taker, on the one hand, and uh, the policyholder on the other hand. And the risk taker or the insurance company, um, yeah, is interested in that the the policyholder is not lying to him because of the moral hazard topic in in that mm. direction, and that he, uh, if he asks him for paying a claim, the the claim really occurs. On the other hand, the policyholder must be sure that in case of claim, the uh, insurer is really transferring the money to him so that he can um, work on, yeah, especially for, for, let's call them black swan events or big events. They might have an existence threatening um, impact for the company. And so they need the trust and truth in both directions um, that the one... Um, pays his premium and the other one um, uh, adjusts the claim uh, when it occurs. So a really interesting business from my point of view. Yeah, it is unique in that way, isn't it? That we think about the insurance industry being about this, this like you talked about it earlier, it's a transfer of risk. And um, it is it is in a way sort of what it came from, gambling, right? I mean, I, I remember like <laughs> hearing the, the great story back in sort of the the coffee house of Lloyd's of London that they that this was all sort of came from people gambling first of all and then this idea that well this is it isn't it this is a big gamble someone comes in with a ship and a cargo they want to insure and you're kind of thinking to yourself oh will my money be safe will they go down will they turn up you know am I gonna have to you know give them some cash back so yeah it's, it, there is this idea as well that it's just a, a really interesting academic process about gambling what are your thoughts on that yeah that the <laughs> That, that's a that's great especially um if you take uh, different cultures into account if you um talk to uh, a traditional german insurer and tell them that um, this is a kind of gambling um they will be not amused um because <laughs> they, they will tell you a uh, hundred hours what's the difference between gambling and insuring is and maybe they are right um but as you said especially in the early stages in Edward Lloyd's 
coffee house, this is a way of gambling. Um, and uh, but I think the the, the Brit guys um, have a different culture and laugh. The word gambling is uh, don't scare them um, because they think okay. At the end of the day, it's a fun fact, yeah. And uh, of course, you have lots of lots of data and perhaps knowledge about something, but you never know if it happens or not. So, it's like a good poker game. The better you are, the uh, the less um, the risk for yourself if you carry it. But um, at the end of the day, the rising of insurance is definitely gambling and putting together some some data and knowledge and uh, mm. but. Gambling definitely the starting point of all, I would say. Yeah, I I, I get that, and I I like I understand that. Actually, I kind of think, though, I always think a business in a way is just gambling. You you as an entrepreneur, you get some money, <laughs> and you you have a premise that with that money that you've got from someone that you can make more money with that money by going into the market and doing something that's kind of interesting. Um, and in in it's the reverse, isn't it? With with insurance, you know you. You kind of okay. figure out whether or not you're going to lose it. So, yeah, I don't think it has to be negative. It's just an interesting way to think about it when from people from the outside. And when I heard first the idea of gambling and, and insurance together, I was like, oh, yeah, it does seem obvious that that is actually what it's about. <laughs> I, I would say if we accept that um, insurance or startup business or stock market investments um, mm. are just like gambling, um, what <laughs> Why should I then pay a house, uh, 100,000 pounds for my Wharton MBA? Or why should I pay my brokers uh, uh, that much money, um, which know the stock market better than me and which know the insurance market better than me? So I think this is, it depends on whom you ask. Yeah? And if you ask uh, an underwriter, he will never ever accept um, <laughs> that insurance uh, is gambling. If you ask me, <laughs> <laughs> who's a bit different um, from his mindset, I would always say it's a gambling. Of course, you, you can actually um, get a better advance, let's say, than just a gambling. But in the end, if it claims, everybody will tell you that it was a gambling. Uh, if it works well, everybody's fine. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So I'd like to sort of pivot back if we can to like, you know, your, you know, your, your company, RiskX, and, mm -hmm. you know, what you're doing there, because I'm, you know, just to really explore a bit about, you know, what you've learned from growing risk with RiskX, um, what that business is about. And yeah, like the, the whole journey that you've had with it. So yeah, just first of all, maybe just tell us a little bit about RiskX and, and your experience in, in with that business so far and why you came up with the idea. Yeah, sure. Um, I have a, perhaps not a typical career. I started working uh, for an insurance broker, then I worked for a first insurer, then I worked for a reinsurer, and then I became a professor on innovation for six years. But I always had a, my eye and my research on um, alternative um, risk transfer because I love that most. Um, it's very, very interesting and very close to gambling, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was a student of mine 
came in and said to me, uh, Marcus, um, I read an article about blockchain and everybody t talks about blockchain and your industry will be disrupted by blockchain. And he was so sophisticated about the blockchain. And, and then I thought to myself, okay, what did I miss? Uh, and then I start <laughs> <laughs> reading some articles on blockchain and I thought to myself, oh, this is really interesting. Um, and then I said to him, yeah, yeah, sure. Write your master thesis about that topic. And then I realized, okay, I can stay here in university for 30 years and see what will happen. Or I build up my own startup and perhaps um, have a, a tiny impact on what will happen. And so we founded RiskX, which is more or less, uh, <laughs> I had the discussion during Lloyd's lab when people who work with me for years now ask me, oh, now I understand what RiskX is standing for. So here to your audience, RiskX stands for risk exchange <laughs> <laughs> wow as if I, I i like to think that i already got that but that's <laughs> that's good um so that so that kind of is the that comes back to sort of the idea of why is insurance important because it is this exchange of risk and that's where you study so why is risk exchange where you decided to go to what what drew you to the idea of risk exchange hmm yeah, really, uh, really great question. Um, if you read the, if you take the starting point, um, the financial crisis in 2008, um, this was the rising of Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever uh, this guy is, or a group of people uh, who worked on the blockchain. And this is mm -hmm. a nine page long white paper. And you, if you read that through, that's so really interesting to understand that perhaps um, all about the insurance industry or every every other industry uh, for for sometimes we talked about kill the middleman strategies platforms iot whatever and then i read through and i realized myself hmm, who is the middleman within the insurance industry is it really the broker or is it the insurance themselves so is the whole value chain maybe um nothing else than a middleman because at the end of the day it's transferring risk from a to b so this is the blockchain um, thing uh, of of our model and the other thing is as you mentioned before let's go back to uh, edward lloyd's coffee house as i studied uh, lloyd's for several years i love that concept of lloyd's especially the early concept of lloyd's and then i thought to myself okay you have a blockchain opportunity trading from A to B, secure and transparent. So what do we need for a kind of solution that it can go that easy way that someone just transfers a risk, um, let's say like, uh, like, like a stock, yeah, to mm. another one. And in case of claim, uh, this one has to pay the money back. Uh, to the policyholder. So um, it's more or less what we thought about is um, how can we build um, the Lloyd's Coffee House 2.0. Hmm. And that's what attracted you to this idea of risk exchange. So, because that's what I suppose Lloyd's is, it's a risk exchange, it's a risk exchange of what you're trying to do. And so if I understand that the, the premise with RiskX is that you will be able to create sets, like you, you'll have a client come to you with a set risk, right? And that risk, you'll then be able to, using parametrics, create um, a product which will have a set of predefined triggers. So 
what were action, the actual claim itself, for example. Um, and then individuals from the capital markets, for example, could buy a slice, a proportion of that risk profile, thus transferring part of what transferring away the risk from the holder or the original originator of the said risk. Is that was that a horrific explanation of what you're doing? Or and would you like to categorize I, I, it in this <laughs> No, I would say you have a new job as a sales guy with risk X, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized it during my journey now in the startup environment that I've been too long a professor because you can talk and talk and talk and nobody perhaps listen, but nobody uh, asks you any question or will interrupt you. Um, so I didn't really learn how to describe RiskX in a in an elevator pitch way. So you did it in a perfect way. And um, yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Lloyd's. Um, but what, what is, uh, let's call it the, the problem, hopefully, um, John Neal is not unsatisfied with what I'm saying now. I would say the major problem for companies like Lloyd's is that we live in a VUCA world, yeah, and the risks are uh, we are having more or we are faced more and more to new kind of risks, emerging risks like the let's say the climate change, cyber. These are all um, COVID-19 now, these are all one in a hundred risks and we had so many of them within the uh, first 20 years of 21st century. So it's hard for Lloyd's um, to slice and dice the risk within their syndicates. And the only idea what um, we have, which hopefully supports um, in the midtime Lloyd's a bit, is the idea of if it's parametric and it's so easy to understand and easy to calculate, you maybe do not have to need an insurer to understand that. We are going back to the early, early days of Lloyd's where the businessman come in, as you described, and say, okay, this is a Titanic, maybe not the best example, but okay, this is a Titanic, the safest ship ever built. Hmm. Okay, I take a slice of uh, whatever, 10,000 pounds, and I need a premium of X, Y, um, and then I'm fine with that. So this is the idea of the risk exchange saying if the the the, the um, let's say the Lloyd syndicates do not have the ability of covering such huge events like the pandemic right now, for example, yeah, why do we not um, take whatever just wealthy people into account and say um, you are buying gold, you are buying stock stocks, you buy uh, bitcoins, whatever, why shouldn't they buy risk as a kind of an asset class for their portfolio? What have you found to be the hardest obstacle to overcome when creating a new solution like RiskX? What has been the hardest thing to overcome to get your solution working? <laughs> uh, Perhaps I think the idea itself is a bit really freaky and fancy to some people and uh, and um, or sound a bit freaky. And of course, the, the traditional insurers and reinsurers might not be too happy um, as it sounds that I want to disrupt their business model. But this is really not our intention. Our intention is that um, I've worked for several years on studying captive solutions, which means... Um, in-house insurers of uh, fortune companies. 
and the major problems for them if they 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 are really interesting strategic solution but in the end they need a huge amount of capacity um and so their major problem is getting their risk transferred because they need sometimes half a half a billion of 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 capacity uh, and this is a really, really huge problem for the industry itself. So they have to split it and say, okay, you uh, insurer A take 10%, you insurer B take 10%, whatever. The major problem is that every single insurance company has their own wordings. Yeah. So if you try to slice and dice your risk to um, to different insurers, they will always ask you for some things they in the wording they want differently and it takes sometimes mm -hmm. not just months it sometimes takes years to to get all these things done and it's a huge problem for the brokers as well because they cannot um, write down one single wording okay 10 10 insurers maybe will accept that but if they really have to uh, bring it to their books they will ask the broker to change these and the other one wants to change that so parametric is not, um, uh, I would say, a solution for every single risk existing. I cannot think about a liability insurance at the moment where um, parametric makes sense. But if it's just about property risk or something like that, or climate change, hurricanes, et cetera, something like that, easy to understand. And the major problem for the insurers are the capacity. Then a parametric make definitely sense because if uh, if the they have to pay if they sail over Paris uh, in the time of X to Z, everybody understands that, and it's so easy to create a smart contract, and then maybe opportunity for the brokers um, to get more capacity in beyond the insurance market, and so there's no more capacity free uh, for for hedging other risks uh, on the market or. Yeah, or, or on the other hand, creating new lines of insurance um, as well. Because uh, as we discussed uh, the, the gambling theory, um, the insurers, uh, I will not say getting smarter and smarter, but they are getting more and more risk averse. Um, and so what they really need uh, is more capacity and make some trial and errors um, in creating new lines of insurance. Okay, interesting. So there's two points I want to pick back on there. So when I asked you the question about, you know, what is the most difficult thing about getting, getting this these solutions to work, I heard from you sort of maybe a theme around communication and that that in this industry that there is complex contracts, complex demands for certain wording, certain types of communication to take place to enable them to take on those risks. And that type of bespoke customization, continual bespoke customization, it drives such inertia when it comes to getting people to do things that ultimately it just doesn't happen, right? And, um, and, then, and then sort of coming now to sort of what you were finishing up with there as well about um, capacity and this desire to try new things because insurance companies are increasingly um, risk averse, right? Uh, don't want to <laughs> don't want to go in and take big risks on their books. Um, 
And so we need more capacity in the market. And for listeners out there who maybe don't know much about insurance, we may be throwing out a few words here. So certainly capacity means the individuals with money to underwrite the risk. So for example, you may have a fund that say 20 million that has 20 millions worth of risk involved, right? And so you need someone, you need the capacity, people who are prepared to put enough money into covering that risk, right? And so, and when they put their money in, say somebody wants to bring capacity of 1 million, they will want a certain coupon, a certain premium for putting that in. And it's like getting, maybe it's four or 5% for that, that risk they would be covering. But of course they have the potential to lose the 1 million. So it's like that gambling <laughs> that I like to use, right? When you hear that, it does seem like an educated bet that they're going to make um, based on the information that they have, right? And, yes. Um, cool, good. So we're very clear on that. So, I mean, I want to come back to sort of, you know, innovation and communication. Maybe we could sort of pivot there for a moment. How do you approach creating new ideas? Yeah, good question. I, w- I would say... As I've been a professor for innovation, I, I'm using the traditional tools you you learn there, and I think these are the ones who have the greatest opportunity of being successful. Saying um, the design thinking approaches or something like that, or uh, sometimes it sounds a bit like buzzwords if you say customer centricity. Okay, yeah, maybe a buzzword, but first of all, that make uh, the most sense. And um, adapted to our industry, I would say it's that way. If you if you are um, from the risk taker perspective, acting from the risk taker perspective, and you say, "Yeah, come on, we set up a new product," um, maybe that will not really fit the requirements of the of the market, which means the policyholder, the the the, the, the your clients. Yeah, you mm-hmm. want that the clients insure something or transfer the risk to you, so. That's why we started with parametric. It's 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 much easier um, to focus on the needs of the customers themselves. So we do it the other way around. Um, uh, we do not talk with the insurers. Of course, we talk with the insurers. I like I like them as well. But first of all, um, our clients are the policyholders, which means the companies who have a risk in the books they want to transfer. And then we start asking them, okay, why is it a risk? What will be the impact? Um, I think this is uh, the most important question nowadays times, uh, especially for for companies um, uh, who are um, uh, on the stock market, yeah, the Fortune 500 in the market. Um, their greatest risks are, um, from my perspective nowadays, time, um, their reputation, for example. So, mm-hmm. um, and uh, their stock market prices and something like that. And our question is not, okay, you have a, 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 a silent cyber attack. Um, what do you need? In in 90% of the of the case, they say, we, we need no money for that because we have the experts in house, but our clients might be... Um, might be unsatisfied and not amused because we um, their 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 data got stolen or whatever or we are um, they cannot use our our products for 48 hours and then we have a deep impact on our reputation and our stock market uh, uh, or our share price slumps and so on so we are coming um, from a 
bit a different standpoint and not thinking um, like an insurer. Of course, an insurer thinks like an insurer because he's an insurer. <laughs> <laughs> and we are more coming from the perspective of, um, of the market itself, of the policyholders and saying, okay, what are you really looking for? What is your needs? And if you would have the opportunity in covering whatever you want to, please tell us. And then we try to break it down as easy as, as possible, make a parametric product out of it. And then we start with all these nice big data machine learning approaches to say, okay, the opportunity that these claims occurs is, let's say, 0.48%. And then we are looking to the capital market, the insurance market, the reinsurance market, whoever <laughs> uh, is available and has the money and say, okay, 0.4.8, that's fine. As you mentioned before, with capacity, I offer you one million uh, in case of claim, but I need a premium of let's say 500 basis point, which is equivalent to five percent, and then I'm fine. So you're focusing when when it comes to like creating new ideas, then you're getting very closely focused to the needs of the customers, um, focusing on first and foremost what they want then helping in your context around parametric triggers to create some examples exactly and then bring that solution to the market this brings me to a question around product orientated ceos um because it's been my thinking for for a while though that the most effective ceos have sort of at their center like a deep focus on product right and, and given that you know, when you're working in highly technology environment, high te technology focused environments, it can be enticing to just bring in and throw lots of technology solutions at something and then try and find a problem for that, that solution. <laughs> but um, I'm, yeah, I'm so I'm sort of really interested to know about your thoughts on the CEO having at their heart, a very strong product focus. I just like your thoughts around that. So what do you think about being yeah, a product focused CEO? And do you agree with my assertion? I would completely agree, but actually, okay, I'm named um, a CEO, but we are um, 15 people working here, and um, some of them tell me that I'm not a CEO and that I'm not really a founder. Um, I'm more like a, a Daniel Düsentrieb from the Donald Duck, um, more uh, on inventing things, So, <laughs> uh, but I'm not the one... Um, Frankly, I do not have to talk to to stakeholders. I have not do not have to talk to shareholders. Yeah, this is we are a, a small group, so I would not say that I'm the typical CEO as maybe um, whatever Jeff Bezos is. But let's take him as an example. I read an article about him that um, for years his only job was more or less getting up in the morning and thinking about solutions for his customers and thought about this the whole day. And then he um, talked about his ideas, I think, with uh, some smart guys within his company and asked them, is this possible? Or, uh, or let's see an Elon Musk. Maybe some people also say that he is not the typical CEO. Maybe right. But he's the one who is hands-on working on solutions for his customers and make them possible. Uh, Bill Gates, uh, sorry. Yeah, maybe Bill Gates as well. But I thought, honestly, of Steve Jobs. He was extremely the same way. Um, so I, I would say I agree absolutely with you. But 
maybe we will not find an answer on my on my theory now but um these are completely different companies i would say they mm. they start the, the the culture within the company is focusing on the client is focusing on trial and error they have no long standing um tradition on the market uh, where most of the uh, employees saying oh, we did this and that for 40 years and we have all been happy with that i think it's much it's a much harder job being a CEO of uh, whatever VW, BMW, whatever. They did a great job for, let's say, 100 mm. years. And then there's a Elon Musk coming up and saying, guys, you have all to drive electricity uh, at um, uh, powered cars, as I do, because I love him and I love uh, his <laughs> idea behind that. But frankly, I do not want to change with um, the uh, CEO of BMW because then you are there. And you have lots and lots of experts who know everything about engines but you come to them on a monday morning and say to them uh we do not need that engines anymore we now uh, need battery uh experts and then they say what <laughs> never heard of that and i would say it's the uh, to adopt that into our industry it's the same way if you are an underwriter who does a, who does a really really great job for let's say 20 25 years the major problem you get is that you know too much about your industry and that, uh, of course, you think in silos and you think um, uh, this is the right solution as you worked on that for 25 years and so on. And that makes it um, sometimes so hard getting in touch with that people and saying, hmm, let's think about the indemnity approach. We think this is a bit old school. And I completely understand when the people who worked on indemnity solutions for 30 years tell me, Hey, you stupid guy coming from university want to tell me now how my business is working? Are you damn? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, completely agree. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one because I've heard that before from the CEOs who come from outside of the industry and they often get that, that reaction. Can I ask you then, what would be your advice then for the next generation of insurance builders who are coming in as CEOs? and may have a lack of experience. What would be your advice to you know, the next generation of insurance builders? Yeah, interesting. I would listen. I, I think listen is always a good advice. Listen to the people who are already in the market and then think of um, who will be your, who is on the one hand your client and on the other hand, um, yeah, with whom you are interested in working together. And um, of course you have to listen and you have to be um, polite on the other hand as well. And if you say, yeah, I'm now coming with my, let's say it again, Wharton MBA and my, I'm 25 years old and I'm wearing some red shoes and have my Apple laptop and now I'm disrupting the world. That's okay, yeah. Alexander the Great wasn't older than you, but um, <laughs> maybe the 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 better the better approach would be getting in touch with the traditional market and first of all understand what you want to disrupt or find a better solution for um yeah because then it's much easier um yeah to building up great relationships with the existing market Mm -hmm. Because just you say, I'm building up a, a startup and I have a better solution and here I am, the traditional um, market will not say, okay, you're right, this product is much better than our, uh, so um, 
will go now and uh, stage is yours. Of course not. Yeah, I've heard this said before that partnerships are incredibly important in the future of insurance. And I suppose that's, we talk a lot about disruption. And I wonder if that sometimes is conflated with sort of going it alone. <laughs> but <laughs> disruption can be done in partnership. And I was, I did hear Praveena Ladvasay on her media day from Swiss Re about the importance of Swiss Re. And there's the whole digital strategy will be about partnerships. It will be about working with organizations that can help them do new things in new ways. But ultimately, they need, we need to be cooperating with the, the sort of the foundations of an industry. Otherwise, smaller firms aren't really going to get going, right? It's a really difficult thing to do. So yeah, partnerships, that's really at the core of your business as well, right, Marcus? So that's all. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, um, uh, risk exchange um, hopefully will become um, an ecosystem at the end of the day, or should be. But there's even the even um, the idea is great. You need on the one hand the policyholders, and you need on the other hand the risk takers who are interested in working with us. So. Um, of course, partnerships is, um, I would say, the most important thing uh, for us and getting an understanding um, for both sides of the market. Uh, of course, for the policyholders, but also um, an understanding of the risk takers and their appetite and to see why they are perhaps not interested in working with us or why they are interested in working with us. Because then um, perhaps, it's a homogeneous market. If the if A says yes, maybe the reason why they say yes make absolutely sense for B as well. Mm. And mm. so, as I said, listening to the current market experts and the, the let's call them the real CEOs in the market definitely helps. If you mm. have the opportunity of a chat with John Neal from Lloyd's um, for five minutes as we had uh, during the fusion days. It's, uh, it's really interesting what he's, what he's telling you. And uh, these are the powerful guys within the industry. So listen and look how you can, I will not say assist them or how you can develop something that, uh, which make them or make you interesting so that they, um, have a need for working with you together. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And I think working together and finding cooperation and partnerships, that's, you know, I think the one thing I really enjoy about working in the insurance industry, particularly as well, is that there seems to be an open openness to these types of collaborations and, and partnerships. So uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I, sorry, uh, maybe I can add one thing because there Please, will yeah, be maybe some some young guns out there and say uh, disruption is not well working with uh, traditional companies or so on. Always keep in mind um, that Jeff Bezos started with a bookstore, an online bookstore. Yeah, that uh, that um, Tesla. Uh, had a collaboration in the early stages with with Daimler, Daimler, and then they become that huge. So, cooperating with traditional huge companies within our industry does not mean that your business model will not win in in the end of the days. Yeah, mm. but especially for the early stages, you will there's 
as you mentioned before, there's no really other industry working like the insurance, um, and that's it. So you will not be successful in the insurance industry if you are not able to working with the big players together and you find something um, what they love and what makes you so attractive that they say, okay, we would love to work together with you. This is, mm. you will never ever be successful. So if there's someone out there who wants to disrupt our industry, listen to Marcus, first of all, cooperation, <laughs> and then you can work <laughs> on uh, building something, whatever. Yeah. Right? The, the concept of cooperation and community and partnerships is is um, very clear. And your point about Tesla, um, they do. They've got big backing, actually, from, from Mercedes. Um, and I know they use, actually, some of the Mercedes parts in their cars, for example. Exactly. Even, even now, if you've ever been in a Tesla, you'll see that the indicator sticks are actually from a Mercedes. Um, and they've seen where they need to disrupt and they've seen where they need to partner. And I think that comes back to the idea of, buy or build which is a topic i hear a lot about in the exactly. industry yeah. from in, in, in companies trying to innovate you know why if you're if you're innovating inside a company why would you want to recreate say a crm system when you've got so many crm systems out there you might <laughs> as well just partner with someone and then kind of innovate around that stack right and sort of create that solution in around what you kind of want to what you need to build because it doesn't exist and I think maybe in technology, that's like a, a pure place to see that need for partnership and disruption and creation and how that works. I'd like to now just talk a bit about Fusion, the Fusion Lab, because you've mm -hmm. recently had some great achievements there, Marcus. And maybe you could just share a bit about what Fusion was, what Fusion Lab is, um, and what you did with RiskX. Yeah, the the let's call it the normal program. Um... Uh, of Lloyd's Lab is a 10 weeks program with some mentors of, of uh, yeah, the Lloyd's market. We have participated last year in cohort number two and it was really an outstanding experience. As I said, listen to them guys. Uh, if you ever have the chance working together with Lloyd's, it's fantastic. Uh, so when, yeah, Corona um, ended our world or let's say, I do not know, how else to say, Lloyd's lab had another idea of saying, okay, we need something faster and um, in remote, uh, which can be done in remote. And they said, um, we make a fusion program, which is uh, was just three days. And we invite some startup with early stage ideas, uh, especially with the focus on Plex One events. Um, and we have been one of the four lucky guys who participated in that um, in the program starting on Tuesday morning and it uh, Thursday evening. Not many sleep during these three days because we really had to build something up and making a prototype of our idea. And we worked on the idea of a power audit um so we thought ourselves corona hit us high um but what could be more extreme than corona and then we said okay um a cyber tech maybe or a global cyber tech um and nobody can work from home anymore and um a complete stop of the whole world economy mm. but then we said okay what is the stage before cyber 
we know uh, we all know we need power um, to for our laptops and our uh, coffee machines coffee yeah. machines yeah. and both yeah, I mean right <laughs> talk about end of civilization you know the coffee machine can't work definitely <laughs> definitely and so we said okay let's uh, take the example of power outage um, as Lloyd's had a, a great research on that in 2015 with um, University of Cambridge and they said it's a <clears throat> one in a hundred uh, uh, sorry one in a 200 years example and mm -hmm. we thought okay corona was a one in a hundred uh, years example so perhaps for the audience who never who is who are not of our industry a one in a hundred means um the possibility that an event like that occurs is one in a hundred years yeah and if you say it's a one in a 200 um it means uh the opportunity that that this happens is really, really low because it's a one in a 200 years. Um, but these are the events who hit our industry the most. Mm. Um, and so we said, okay, let's focus on that and focus on a power outage um, in North America with, uh, yeah, with a power outage, especially in the um, East, Mideast region means uh, New York off, Washington off. Uh, what wow. would then happen? That would be pretty incredible as an incident. The potential for, I mean, you can only imagine even if that, if a, if a power outage would, would, would happen maybe for a day, the, the inconvenience, but a week, the, the type of infrastructure strain that would be put on food, food production, exactly. food storage, um, the operation of internet, critical systems in hospitals, Oh, Christ, you could just think of the continuing ripple effect that that would have through a an economy, you know, no lighting at night, you know, the, the various things in streets. Riot, welcome. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So there would then be a law and order consequence to that. Exactly. And we're only, and you can only imagine what it would be like for one week. I mean, it would effectively throw our societies, you know, your folks, which probably the thing to remember, your phone would probably stop working unless you've got some solar panels and solar power. You'd have no phone after like a day and a half, would you? So most people are kind of constantly charging their phone. So these this incident would be catastrophic for a modern yeah. day economy. Um, and I suppose so. You you were kind of creating a concept of okay, what would be what would happen? What would have to be true for that to happen? And then how would we? transfer that risk right and what would we do with that exactly <laughs> frankly spoken it was my dad uh, who sends who said something interesting and he never worked within our industry he said marcus had because i was so happy about myself and the product and talked to him and he said marcus uh if your solution is working on a blockchain and it's an IoT, he he uses other words on that. <laughs> but then he said, and if there's a power audit, hmm, do you see the mistakes? Then <laughs> 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 I realized myself, okay, this is yeah, this is. Uh, this. So if if someone out there who thinks that Marcus is a stupid idiot, he he's talking about a technical solution in in case that there is a, a power outage. Yeah, we know about that. Um, uh, <laughs> we will find a solution for that. But the, the major idea was really what what could hit could hit us most. What is the overall Armageddon? And if you think of Wall Street down, Washington down, as you describe, 
no more electricity, what will then, especially in nowadays time, happen in the US? And this will be, from our perspective, an Amagadan scenario. Um, this is half of the way to understand what could hit the world most. And the other half of the way um, is definitely saying, okay, how can the insurance industry jump in? Is there really an opportunity how we how we can help during that time? And frankly, it would be hard, as you described, food uh, is uh, to bring the food to the people would be a, the greater question or to, to, to stay on work for, for, let's say, the 10 days. We said it's a 10 days audit. Um, but the major idea was um, bringing money quick to the people again so that they can go for shopping and they can uh, and that the, the business can survive and maybe not um yeah and and a private solution on that means the insurance industry or the the capital market deliver a solution and it's not always the government who says okay guys here's uh, um here here's some money um because um the insurance industry tells everybody we cannot cover that that kind of solution mm-hmm. uh, sorry solution <laughs> that kind of event we have no solution on that and we thought about what would be an Armageddon event and is there an opportunity to transfer the risk of black swan events yes or no and we would say yes and it seems like the jury of lloyd said yeah, might be, and so we will follow up uh, um, and uh, hopefully develop um, a solution on Black Swan events with the example of power audit, because we hope that we can adopt that also to pandemics or something like that. So in a so if I go back to the Fusion Lab thing, then so you spent it's a three day format, is that right? So you did it's three a, days, yeah. three days, and they sort of go come up with something great. <laughs> so you sort of, you've gone in with a premise, right, around RiskX and what you're interested in, the 10 C's program, right? I understand. But then you have to create something in that day that's, yeah. that fits. I, I, would, I would say this is um, innovation management at its best. Uh, you, um, um, and we had this discussion with uh, LMAX as well as they were friendly and asked me, um, uh, every participant, of course, um, did you like the three days and so on? And I would say, um, yes, I really love that. And I love the concept itself because you can, you you see after three days, you see if the idea is completely bullish, yeah? Or does it make sense to follow up with that? And so as I had the 10 weeks and I had the three days, from my perspective, as you would do that in a in a in a traditional company as well, um, my advice would be start with the three days, um, and then ask the market. Here are the the ten solutions with how many of them, or let's pick the best five out of them, and we follow up with them working with the market because that this will be the next days. We had sensational mentors uh, with Chris Moore. Um, John Donald, uh, Akash Baradia, uh, Jaden Leonard from um, Munich Re, uh, Axis Capital, and Apollo. And now we will see uh, who will jump in our boat during the 10 weeks um, within Lloyd's, within the market, if it will be possible to go there. Otherwise, we will do that following remote and to see if there's really a market existing. Are the other syndicates interested in a product like that? Or do they say, well, no, we are not really interested in? That because this is really pure gambling from our perspective. 
So when you say, do you want to do you want to explain to people what the syndicates are again for people who aren't afraid with the Lloyd setup? What is a syndicate? Uh, yes, yeah, something really interesting. <laughs> if you come to Lloyd's, uh, Lloyd's itself is a marketplace, and uh, you should go there. It's impressive. Um, then you have something um, they call it the underwriting room. I would say it looks like a market hall um, uh, where um, people in suits are sitting, and you come with uh, your slip um, of risk as you, when you are a broker, and you go from let's say to box to box business as they call it you go to box number one and say i have this kind of risk and i need let's say 100 million and then box number one which is syndicate let's say of access capital say okay as i described earlier the 100 million is a is too big for us yeah we are not interested in taking the full uh, um the full risk we take 10 percent, and then they underwrite 10 percent on the slip and then the broker goes to the next table where maybe um, Munich Re is sitting and they say, okay, Access Capital took 10%. What are you guys willing? And they say, well, this is not our cup of tea. Um, please go go, go to the next box and bring <laughs> something else. Maybe and then, more uh, colorful language. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> exactly. And then you go to the next and to the next. And uh, if you are a lucky guy, uh, you have your 100% slip full uh, in the afternoon and can go to London Hall having a pint uh, <laughs> with some of your colleagues. And uh, sometimes you you don't have um, the full slip or, and you do not have 100% because the maybe the risk is too... Yeah, too close to gambling, let's catch up with that word, or too risky, or the syndicates do not like it or do not have enough data to understand it. And there, here, RiskX jumps in and say, okay, um, if Lloyds cannot offer you 100% cover, bring the last 25% to, let's call it the special box of RiskX, and we spread it with the capital markets. Perhaps they have a different understanding of the risk, they have different data, uh, to evaluate that kind of risk or whatever. So if I understand the syndicate then is the literally the idea that you would have a group of individuals who will take on proportions of that risk. So you go into the Lloyd's marketplace, it's like a little like, yeah, like a food market, but insurance market just not doesn't smell as probably good. And um, <laughs> you can say go to from each box to box. And then when you say you have 10 people covering 100%, that's called a syndicate, right? Exactly. Who are covering your risk. Right, excellent. And in your instance, the example you just gave was that um, you would go into Lloyd's, Mar Lloyd's Market, you'd sort of go to 10, you'd only get eight of those agreeing, the remaining proportion, you could come to RiskX and you could create a solution, a parametric solution, and open that up to a big global market. Great, I got that right. <laughs> uh, Marcus is not Excellent. Nodding. Yeah, <laughs> good. Um, and this is one thing that you introduced to me about, and we'll go back to the word capacity here, because this was a very interesting idea what, what you're doing around RiskX, because you were the person who introduced me to the idea of the volume that's available um, in each area of insurance in terms of capacity. So do you want to share that point? Because I thought it was a fascinating point. Like the Just tell the listeners about the capacity that's available in the ILS market, that's Insurance Link Securities, the reinsurance market, and then in the capital markets. <laughs> yeah. 
I love that example. It's uh, it's much more impressive if you see it in the print version, but uh, hopefully impressive enough if um, um, I just talk about that. Um, thanks here to John Donald of Access Capital because he created um, that overview. Mm. Um, let's start with the insurance-linked security market. Um, the market size is 40 billion US dollar. 40 so billion, okay. 40 billion US dollar. Some people will now think, oh, that's a huge amount. But okay, let's go further on. The reinsurance market is 500 billion US dollars. So much, much bigger. And now the most impressive thing, the whole capital market has a size of 175 trillion US dollar, which means I've never been good in maths. Um, that's great if you are, work in the insurance industry. But this seems to be uh, 350 times um, the reinsurance market, mm. which means from my perspective or from the risk-ex perspective and um, hopefully from the perspective of some other people in that market as well, um, that there is much more capacity within the capital market existing than in the reinsurance market and the ILS market. So if you know that and you have the opportunity and understanding of the capital market as the capital market is just interested in making out of the capital more capital, let's say it that way, and you offer them for a good price the opportunity to accepting risk as an asset class, you have much, much more capacity and opportunities. and. From my perspective, this is a good news, especially for the insurance market itself, because sometimes they say this risk is uninsurable. We cannot offer a solution on that because if we just cover one single risk like that with this high severity, um, it could, could kill our books. But if you then say, okay, I offer that solution to my client and I just take 5% of it and transfer the other 95% to the capital market, my client is happy, my book is happy, the capital market is happy um, as long as nothing happens. Um, <laughs> and on the other hand, I have the opportunity of creating solutions for what we call emerging or uninsurable or risks or black swan events, whatever, you name it. It's a very fascinating move. And it, it strikes me that insurance is coming into this point where there should be less friction to the way in which products are created. Because in the, the, the example you gave me, I mean, going into Lloyd's, Lloyd's of London, it seems like for me would be terribly intimidating, you know, to go in as a, someone with some risk that you want to cover. So you've got to call a broker, you've got to find a broker, the broker's then got to go rock around. It's a very convoluted process in, in some many ways. But if you had this idea of working with exchanges where you, you could simplify that process. So as like a, I have an idea for a product that I, a risk that I have, and I'd like to mitigate that risk. And then I can go and offer risk as an asset class. That's fascinating. And like, that's also I, as someone who likes coming up with ideas and building businesses, that's really exciting as well. Oh, so, thank you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're doing here, right? <laughs> no, I'm just, just love. Thank, thank you, Will. Uh, that's really nice. Um, 
But frankly, uh, going one step back in, in our in interview, when you ask me what is um, the hardest thing, um, if you see the world through my eyes or when I talk to the people, um, I would say we the insurance industry uh, really worked for two, three hundred years uh, to make it really complex. And I think this is a strategy <laughs> that the, the, the normal people, let's call them, or the policyholder do not really understand um, the skull and bones environment and the myths of our industry. Um, so if you demystify that to some of the participants in our industry, it's hard for them to understand that it could be that easy. Because as we talk about now about the solution, and you described it to me now, uh, as I described to you earlier, it sounds so, from my perspective, so easy. It's a piece of cake uh, uh, with with that so, uh, scenario transferring my risk. And if I then tell you that machine learning helps you to price the risk as as, as good as an underwriter could do, and that a blockchain delivers the uh, transparency, but also the security, like a traditional insurance company with a double A standard poor's rating has. Yeah, then we are close to the question, is this a way how the traditional insurance market could be disrupted or the value chain could be disrupted? Yeah, very interesting. And that's that's where it gets to, isn't it? That that systems that are it's very if it strikes me it's very easy to be complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um it's very difficult to simplify. And I know this from my own experience that trying to explain things simply is devilishly difficult, particularly when you have something that's meaningful to explain. And I wonder then, that's back to the point about the complication of the insurance industry and the, the is it because it is devilishly difficult or is it just because people have made it that way. <laughs> and maybe me and you obviously have an opinion on that. And I would say it's probably the latter than more the former. And it sounds like you do the same. And that's why we can both uh, surmise that there's an opportunity for disruption. Um, and I find that exciting. But, 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 don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have to jump in again that uh, Lloyd's open me the door again. <laughs> I, I, I read an article about that, and my final conclusion has been um, it's not that the Lloyds and the Munich Rees and the Swiss Rees have to be disrupted. It's a question. They are fine, and I love them, and they did a yeah, really absolutely. great job. The question is, can they disrupt their own business model and rebuild it themselves, or even by the help of some startups? And that should be the way. But um, of course, I, I, I want to pause there because I think that's absolutely point. I don't think, I think this is where some of the problems come, is because, in in talking about the things we're talking about, is like, you know, the big global insurers, the big global reinsurers are doing an important thing, but they've got to be ready to see the change that is coming, and. They need to take part in that. And everybody wants them to take part in it because they have such huge capabilities. They employ huge amounts of people. Exactly. They have like loads of expertise. And so, yeah, of course, we want them to be part of the journey that comes on. Um, but it's like the, the problem comes is when those business models 
or the attitude stops any innovation from happening and it starts stamping it out. And that damages both them and it damages the industry long term. So that's, I suppose, what we're getting to. And I think it's been held very clear um, in what's happened with the pandemic, for example, in the way that the insurance industry has reacted to the pandemic. It's an unknown event. People didn't want to buy risk risk cover risk exchange for it in the pre in previously. They want to say they didn't want to take risk exchange previously. Now they're facing a need to actually provide that risk um, coverage because more and more customers are wanting it. But how the hell do they do it now? And and so many are saying no. In your example, um, I know certainly we talked a bit about Wimbledon in the previous. They had had this pandemic coverage, which people were laughing at them about for so many years, <laughs> and then it pays out. And now they can't get risk coverage anymore, can they? So it's like, but they still want to have their pandemic coverage. So how does the industry react? How, or does someone have to step in and disrupt? So it's, yeah, that's the balance, isn't it? It's this balance between status quo and what is new. A perfect, perfect description, yeah. So Marcus, I just like to sort of, sort of, as we're coming towards the end of our time now, I, I'd just like to ask you back to sort of maybe you know who's influenced you and who's influenced your your approach to work and you've talked about you know a, a deep interest in Lloyds of London um but yeah maybe you could just sort of share like for people listening like if you were saying to someone go and find out about insurance or go and find out about risk exchange you know, who would you recommend they go and go and go and find out about yeah call me <laughs> you heard it here he's gonna leave his phone number at the end <laughs> um no there um i i've been i've been influenced by by a bunch of people um um of course during my studies um um one of my professors Björn bucher still a very good friend of mine um my mom and dad um as this is a typical answer here to say that my parents, but they did definitely. Um, uh, and also, yeah, the, the, the guys we talked about, uh, perhaps the reinsurance CEOs are not that kind of rock stars like an Elon Musk or um, uh, like a Jeff Bezos. And you maybe will not find too many books about them uh, with uh, uh, somewhere, but they, I really studied them during my university time and um, uh, afterwards uh, as, a, as a professor as well. And so, yeah, as, I, as I said during the interview, you have to understand the market and you have to understand the culture and you have to understand the CEOs of the market. And then you can be not disrupting, but maybe helping them disrupt them, their own business model and rebuilding that. So... But of course, I, I I read everything about guys like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, um, Steve Jobs, to to get an understanding. But also in history as well, Caesar, uh, Alex the Great. To see, I think the most impressive is why are they going to work, um, and why do they still go to work? when they become famous and they had enough money, there's no need for them to go to work anymore. Why do they do that? Um, and how do they reinvent themselves? And what is their mindset to stand up in the morning at four o'clock after four hours of sleep um, and go to work? And I would break it down to one word, laugh. They love what they do and it does not feel like work. And I'm really happy that I can say risk X 
does not really feel like working mm-hmm. as my as my <laughs> as my team members are always say yeah you're right because you are not working that's right mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so <laughs> but i would say this is um, this is i got influenced by several bunch of people but in the end of the day it's it, it's an intrinsic uh, thing if you yeah. like your work it helps fantastic thank you and then i always like to ask what are your top three books and they can be anything so they can be they can be like ones you enjoy just outside of your industry or business books or maybe biographies yeah what are your top three books uh I would say from the innovate uh, innovation perspective, uh, innovate or die uh, is something like the Bible. Um, but the traditional Bible is also an interesting book to read. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the interesting thing with the traditional Bible is um, you have to, um, of course, people who are, who are, uh, no believers, I would say, uh, uh, will tell you that they are just lies standing page on page. Um, if you read that through, there is a, a, a really bright opportunity of interpreting things, and I love book like that. So, and um, the book I love most, uh, which has nothing to do uh, with that, uh, is uh, I love Moby Dick. <laughs> I really oh. love Moby Dick. And I love the books of the old um, Shakespeare and something like that. I still love to read them. Um, but uh, in the original way, and as English is not my mother language, it's sometimes really horrible to understand them. <laughs> but that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And I love yeah, that. Those are challenging books anyway. So if I so Innovator or Die, and that is, um, is that by um, Andreas Oppenheimer? Is that right? I think it's Christensen, uh, Harvard professor. Okay, so the, yeah, so maybe there's a couple. So, um, so this is innovate or die. Maybe you could share us. I'll share a link with that in the post. And then you said the second one is um, the Bible, um, and the teachings and, and learnings that are within the Bible important for you, and Moby Dick um, as a as another timeless book. Yeah, and it's a it's a, a great great lesson on. Um, going after a dream right? and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and disturbing something <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think there's i think many entrepreneurs are interested in that story often about this idea of yeah chasing down a big dream and and the pain that comes along with that and i'm exactly. um, i think in one of my I, love, my I love the aspect on that um, but maybe there's someone out there who never read it and liked to so i will not uh, tell you how the book ends but but um, it's interesting if you think about that that he is successful and at the end of the day the question is was he really successful um i love that book really mm-hmm. i love the storyline and everything that is the big question of life isn't it it is, uh, <laughs> it is. you know we think we're what we're searching for is it actually what we want and i do i do david soloff who was one of my previous guests on the podcast who's been a, a serial entrepreneur said he had a favorite quote from someone in silicon valley who said um, being an entrepreneur is the only job that you can feel on top of the world in the morning I want to shoot yourself in the face in the afternoon. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I can understand that, genuinely. It's He's right. The other way around would be better. Getting up <laughs> in the morning, feel, feeling like that, and getting yeah. to, to with a success. That's what my mother always uh, saying me, wait till the end uh, of the day. There will be something positive that 
make you sleep well. Uh, and she's yeah. sometimes right, sometimes not. <laughs> but <to> win, <laughs> yeah, you know, he actually said exactly the same thing. He did invert it in the ending as well. It's definitely one of those industries. Is, and so I, I think that's a, a like a, a great place to leave it. And I, I really appreciate the, the the sort of the knowledge you've shared with us about the whole insurance industry and you know the work you've done around um risk x and how you've brought forward ideas and you've innovated thank you for telling us a bit about and educating us a bit on the lloyds of london that's really great to hear um and the way that you approach your work with sort of you know a fun attitude and creative attitude and maybe being a bit irreverent about the models but also at the same time respecting what has gone before so Marcus, thank you very much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for your invite. It has been a pleasure giving you my answers. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.